Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you guys. I'm delighted we get to worship together. If you guys are visiting with us, wanted to say a special word of welcome and ask if you could do us a favor. We'd love to get to know you a bit. One of the best ways to do that is to either scan the QR code on here or rip this off and drop it in the offering box at the back after the service. It'd be a great way for us to get to know you uh, and for all of us, new or whether you've been here for 70 years, um, if there are things that we can be praying for each other about, feel free to drop that on here. Um, and, and then also, as the Lord is leading, if there are things he's leading, leading you or, or prompting you with, there are some ways on this little card that you can respond. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about a few of those things in, in the service today. I do just want to let you know that we have a couple things coming up. First of all, Kids Connection resumes in two weeks. So in just a few minutes, we're going to sing one more song that is... Uh, kind of kid-oriented. Um, as you know, this the last couple of months, we've been, been giving our Kids Connection workers a bit of a break, but that's resuming Labor Day weekend. And so if you are open to helping out, talk to Mark Heitzman, and uh, he would love to, uh, love to have you join the team. Also want to remind you that beginning September 11th, we're going to have the Children's Christmas Musical Rehearsals starting preparing the kids and youth for, uh, for a fun musical that's going to happen in December. Um, and then the week after that is Poolsville Day, and Pastor Aramal is assembling a team along with Brian and Ann Pepper um, to fill the booth, to do lots of fun stuff. So there's, there's things that we can do throughout the day. If you would be open to being a part of that, send an email to Aramal, Aramal at PoolsvilleBaptist.com, and uh, I know he'd love to get you on the team and have you assisting with that. And, uh, and then also, mark your calendars for October 1st. I know it's a ways out, but Rise Against Hunger is that day. We're going to put together about 15,000 meals to send uh, to various places around the world. So I want to just make sure you're aware of that and what's, what's, that that's coming. Uh, you can sign up online. You can also donate online because, as we mentioned last week, it doesn't happen for free. We actually purchase all the meals that we are assembling and then sending out. So if you'd be open to helping with that, there are some things you'll see in the midweek announcements, some links you can click, and we'll make sure there's some things on the website as well. But um, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll, we'll continue our time of worship together. God, we do praise you and thank you for your goodness and love. Lord, we thank you for your presence in our lives. In the midst of good times, in the midst of challenging times, we just pray that you'd be honored through us as we, not only in these moments, as we worship you, as we read your word, as we lift up requests and concerns before you. But God, I pray that throughout each day of our lives, you would be honored as we seek to be the people, the men and women, boys and girls that you've called us to be. Be glorified through us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to stand as I read for us our call to worship. This is from Ephesians uh, chapter 2. And it says, For Christ himself has brought us peace. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. So what a joy we have in Christ that we get to have this great Peace. And so we're going to sing our kids' song for this week is Peace Like a River. If you grew up in the church, you may know it's very old. But let's sing this together.
triune God. You are Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider. You are Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer. You are Jehovah Rohi, the Lord, our shepherd. And you are Abba, our Father in heaven. We come before you 
as your redeemed, adopted children. As we have just sung this morning, we are grateful and amazed that you would make it possible for us to even stand in your holy presence. Our minds cannot fully comprehend the truth that you would crush your blessed son to provide for our righteousness. Thank you for giving us the comforter, your Holy Spirit, to enable us to live our lives by faith, to encourage us and to convict us of sin. Thank you for giving us your holy word so we can encounter you and know of your marvelous works. Our gratitude is profound. You are worthy of endless praise and honor and glory. Father, we confess that we often don't live our lives in a manner that is worthy of our calling. We are far too easily distracted and attracted to the idols of our world, wealth, power, pleasure. Please forgive us our weakness. Please forgive us for our disobedience and our unfaithfulness and our sin. Please set our path straight and help us to overcome these sins. And we're grateful for your promise that you're quick to forgive when we ask. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I lift to you the many needs within our congregation. Please be with those who are struggling with their faith because of the trials of life. Please remind them of your loving kindness, of your goodness, and your love for them. Please draw them close and reassure them of their eternal home with you. Lord, please be with those who are suffering because of broken relationships with family members. Please be at work in these relationships to overcome the sinful attitudes, the painful words that have been exchanged, and the misdeeds that have been done. We ask that you would heal these relationships and restore fellowship. Lord, please be with those who are struggling with depression, anxiety, and grief. Please assure them of your presence, of your mercy, and of your light. Lord, please be with those who struggle with physical challenges, with pain, and with disease. We ask, if it is your will, that you would provide healing and restoration and relief. Please be at work with e within each situation to accomplish your purpose and to refine us. Lord, please be with our students. Please bring other believers into their lives to strengthen their faith, to provide Christian community, and to provide encouragement. Please help our students to continue to walk in the truths that you have established in their hearts. Please help them to resist temptation Please help them to discover your calling on their lives. Lord, we pray for the single people in our congregation. We ask that you would help them to maintain a life of purity and to use this season to deepen their walk with you. Lord, please help us as a congregation to reflect your attributes Please draw others to this, in this community, to our church, so they can find light and love and renewal and purpose. 
we are so grateful that you're hearing our prayer and that you're in our midst this morning. And we pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's scripture reading is from John 12, 12 through 36. The next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee. They said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Jesus replied, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray? Father, save me from this hour. But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring your glory. Bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some of them thought it was thunder, thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to him. Then Jesus told them, the voice you have heard was for your benefit, not mine. The time for judging this world has come, when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. The crowd responded, we understood from scripture that the Messiah would live forever. How can you say that the Son of Man will die? Just who is the Son of Man anyways? Jesus replied, my light will shine for you just a little longer. Walk in the light while you can, so the darkness will not overtake you. Those who walk in darkness cannot see where they are going. Put your trust in the light while there is still time. Then you will become children of the light. After saying these things, Jesus went away and was hidden from them. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks, Tyler. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but there are people who seem to be on a quest for glory. There are people in our society that are always wanting some sort of notoriety. They're wanting some sort of fame. For instance, now it's so easy to start a YouTube channel. And if you catch people's attention enough, you can gather and gather and gather and gather this massive following. I heard uh, a couple years ago about a high school student, and all she did was make 20 to 30 second videos opening boxes and telling everybody, ooh, this is the next best thing. Well, she had become so famous at that at, that as a senior in high school in just two months, she made over $2 million and had millions of followers of people watching her open boxes. And, and she just amazing the way that our society is after things like that. Now, I think she was 
I don't know what her motivation was, but she certainly got rewarded for that. People sometimes seek glory by tweeting something that is outlandish or telling everybody, oh, you need to pay attention to this. We also see people, um, there are some people who just have this great ability to perfect an art, whether it's a musical instrument or some other art form. There, there are people who gain notoriety for doing that art well. Some people like to document big adventures, and we see that on Instagram and YouTube, on Instagram and Facebook all the time, even uh, Snapchat if you do that thing. But people are trying to say, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, in order to try to get as many likes as possible. But, you know, that's not a new thing. The story is told of a guy named Ernest Shackelford, and he led an expedition in the early 1900s to the South Pole. And the way the story goes, he put an ad in the newspaper that said this. It said, men wanted for hazardous journey. Here are the incentives. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in the event of success. Honor and recognition. As the rumor has it, he had over 5,000 applicants to that ad. People want to do things to gain glory. And I bring that up because glory is one of the themes. If you saw in the, in the passage that Tyler read, glory came up multiple times. And we're going to look at that today, but let's kind of just catch ourselves up. If you have your Bibles and want to open to John uh, chapter 12, when we last saw Jesus, when we saw him last week, he was at a meal with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead, all of his disciples, and a bunch of other people. There was this massive feast in the town of Bethany. And uh, Mary had just opened an expensive bottle of, of perfume on Jesus, pouring it out on his feet, wiping her feet with her hair, wiping his feet with her hair as a way of honoring him. And today, the passage we're looking at today, beginning in verse 12 of John 12, is the next day. It, people a lot of times call this the uh, triumphal entry. It's also referred to as Palm Sunday in our vernacular. But essentially, there's a large crowd that had been with Jesus. And, they, and there's another crowd that seems to have been coming from Jerusalem to meet him. And they want to escort Jesus and his disciples into town. But as I said, one of the themes that we read, see throughout this chapter, and, and Tyler didn't read the whole thing, um, but is this idea of glory, this idea of glory. And one of the things that we have to recognize is that glory means to ascribe dignity or honor, to ascribe, to give something importance. In the Old Testament, there's a, a, another connotation of that is weight. The, the Old Testament term that's translated as glory refers to weight, something that is heavy. It is, it is filled with importance. So as we look at this passage today, one of the things I think we see is that there are ultimately two sources of glory. There's glory from humanity and then glory from God. And we'll consider how Jesus responded to each, but we'll also consider how we should respond to those as well. You see, these sources of glory are interspersed throughout the passage. So we'll jump around a bit. I want to encourage you to have your copy of God's Word open, but we are going to have a bunch of scriptures on the screen. But as we, as we consider both of these sources, we'll reflect on several, several principles that seem to be evident in this passage. So if you want to take notes in your outline, we're going to begin where I think this passage begins, and that is with glory from humanity. We see this in verses, uh, in really in, in a lot in, in verses 12 through 19, but glory from humanity is seen in a variety of ways in this passage. But one of the first things that we get to see is that this is driven by fad and initiated by emotion. You see, after hearing Jesus, after seeing him, as after having this meal and spending time with him, seeing this guy who had raised a dead man back to life, all these people are excited that Jesus is now going into Jerusalem. They're excited that he is there. 
and they want to join in. So there's this massive fervor. We don't know exactly how many people are there, but it seems like there could be thousands who are on this little two-mile journey from Bethany to Jerusalem. And in many ways, it's not unlike some of the political fervor that we see from time to time, the emotionalism of some movements. If you remember back in the, in the days and months leading up to the 2008 presidential election, Barack Obama garnered huge crowds of people. All these people were excited that an African-American was the candidate to be president. And people were excited about all that that might mean. In a very similar way, in the run-up to the 2016 election, Donald Trump seemed to have thousands and thousands and thousands of people who would join him at different stadiums. Essentially, these crowds in 2008, many of them in 2016, the crowds around people who are following Jesus, they're following a fad. They're getting on the bandwagon. Ooh, let's do this. Let's follow this guy. And as we think about the triumphal entry, we have to ask, what is the fad that they were riding? What is that moment that they were looking after? And it seems like they were looking after a political revolution. But how do we know that? How do we know it was a political revolution that they were after? And one of the big ways is the palm branches. The palm branches. You think, well, what? How is it the palm branches that did that? See, one of the things we see in Scripture is we don't see palm branches used in really any of the, um, the feast, and certainly not Passover. The palm branches are not present in Passover, and this is Passover time. But what we've learned, and Don Carson notes this, and he said from about two centuries earlier, palm branches had already become a national, not to say nationalistic, symbol when a man named Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of the Jerusalem citadel, he was feted with music and the waving of palm branches, which had also been prominent at the rededication of the temple. And so palm branches became this idea of, yay, the nation of Israel, yay, this is us. And so their hope was that Jesus would be their new national leader. And then on top of that, they quote from the Halal Psalms. And, and in fact, they, the quote that, that John records here is from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26, essentially says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. But when John records that, when he marks what they say, here's how John, how, here's how John quotes what they're, what they're saying in John 12, 13. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So the people misquoted what was back there in Psalm 118 and recorded it as a political event. That word, Hosanna, means save us or bring your salvation. And it seems like they were calling for not a spiritual salvation from sin, but they were calling for a political salvation over their enemies. And I think it's important for us to recognize that political fervor does not equate with biblical service. Political fervor does not equate with biblical service. You see, this crowd had the right person, but the outcome they were looking for was the wrong outcome. Jesus did not come to do the thing that they wanted him to do. And I think this is really why Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. See, think about this. If he was leading a political revolution, if he, if he was truly going to be this political king, then he would get on a horse. He would have a sword in his hand, these palm branches. He would come in as the victorious, conquering king. But instead, he fulfills scripture, Zechariah 9.9, and he comes in on a donkey, humble and lowly, basically saying, yes, I'm the rightful king of Israel, but I'm not that kind of king. I'm not that kind of king. 
So Jesus deflects this fad-driven and emotionally instituted glory. He's not after their approval. In fact, as we look more broadly in Scripture, we'll get to see, secondly, that, that glory from humanity is short-lived. And we see this not so much in the passage we're looking at today, but in John chapter 19, the crowd that loved Jesus earlier in the week seems to have abandoned him in just a matter of days. I mean, how often does that happen for us? People in politics who everybody loves, they say one thing and everybody hates them. So here, John chapter 19, verses 14 to 15, he, meaning Pilate, said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Keep in mind, they wanted a king. Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now, John typically uses the phrase the Jews to refer to the Jewish leaders, those people who were not believing. And it seems certainly like this turning away from Jesus is led by their leaders and by the kangaroo court that they used to try Jesus. The other gospel writers seem to indicate that this mob that was assembled just prior to his crucifixion was much more than that small group of leaders. And whatever the case, the glory from humanity was short-lived. Thousands welcoming into Jerusalem on, on Sunday. By Friday, thousands crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But I think as we, as we think about this in our own lives, how often do we clamor for approval from other people only to find a moving target? What is acceptable in one moment becomes taboo the next. And we can see this in our society at large with cancel culture and social stigmas. We also see it, I think, in the church. Certain trends, certain fads, things come and go. And I think this is why it's so important for us to remain in the word of God and in fellowship with people who will encourage us as we walk with the Lord. You see, the word of God is timeless and his principles are eternal. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 reminds us that grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. But I think there's one other thing that we can see from this glory from humanity and that this glory is fickle. We see this in verses 42 to 43. John writes, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that come comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There are those people who wanted to follow Jesus. They believed that he was Messiah. They believed that he was the guy that Old Testament had been talking about, and they were ready to jump in secretly, in private, as long as it doesn't get me in trouble. They were covert. They refused to go public. But I wonder how often are we like that as well? How often do we have opportunities to make our faith public in conversations or actions or even in baptism? But let's think about this just briefly for, in a couple of ways. Students, I know a lot of you guys, except for Frederick County, Frederick County started last week. MCPS is starting next week, eight days from now. What does going public about your faith look like at school? I think it impacts how you dress. I think it impacts how you speak. I think it impacts your integrity about your work and how you treat other people with dignity and encouragement as fellow image bearers of God. I think it might involve getting plugged in with something like FCA or Young Life or inviting friends to church. Hey, that's a good way to go public. Want them to know you're a Christian? Invite them to Christian things. I think it might also mean offering to pray for someone. I mean, how often do people, are, do people have a bad day and we can say, oh, I'm sorry. 
but instead saying, hey, can I pray for you in that? But what about not only students, but single adults? What does a public faith look like for you? Whether you're in school or you're adulting, welcome to adulting. Being public about your faith impacts your speech. It impacts your work ethics. It impacts who you date. It impacts what you do on dates. It even impacts whether or how much you drink. Going public about your faith impacts every part of life. For parents and grandparents, I think being public about our faith is intentionality with discipling our kids and grandkids. Care with how we talk to and about our spouse. But for all of us, I think being public in our faith impacts our interaction with our neighbors. Do, do our neighbors know that we're followers of Christ? It impacts how we use our resources. Again, offering to pray for a neighbor. Again, inviting someone over for a meal or to church. Praying regularly for the lost around us and then seeking opportunities for gospel seeds to be planted. But you know, one of the biggest ways that Scripture tells us we can go public about our faith is in baptism. It's in baptism. You see, baptism is a means of visibly identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ. It's a means, it's the picture, that picture of going underwater simplifies our death. Death to ourselves, death to our old way of thinking, death to all the things that we held most dear and being resurrected to new life as a follower of Christ. I'm delighted that next month we get to have two ladies go public in baptism. But I want to encourage you, if you've not yet made your faith public, then let's have a conversation about that. But I think it comes down to this question. Do people know we're Christians? And I'm not talking about being Baptists. Do they know we're followers of Christ? Can they tell it by our social media feed? Can they tell it by how we talk and interact, how we care? If not, if they don't know we're Christians, why not? What do we need to change to make sure they know? I think it comes down, the, the bottom line comes down to this. Belief should be publicly proclaimed. If people just assume, oh, those are nice people. Those are good folks. It's one thing to be polite, but it's more to be public about your faith. Some of these guys were fickle. They chose not to go public about their faith in Jesus Christ. They feared the glory that came from the religious leaders. Some people in this passage that we've seen already were seeking to give Jesus glory on their terms. But what we find here is that Jesus was not concerned with that. Instead, he was concerned with glory from God. He was concerned with the other source of glory, and that is glory from God. And so as Jesus proceeded through the crowd and interacted with various groups of people, it's clear that his actions and motivations are not fueled by the hype of the people, but by bringing glory to and receiving glory from God. And this kind of motivation is drastically different. You see, first of all, we get to see that this kind of motivation is marked by sacrifice. You see, in this whole big throng of people, there's all these Jewish people coming around, waving their palms, welcoming this king who's riding on a donkey. Then, then we have some of these Greek folks who are, who are kind of on the outside, and they're looking in, and they're seeing all this, and they say, hey, Philip, hey, we want to go talk to Jesus. We want to come in and, and talk to him. We want to see what he is all about. 
And so Philip gets Jesus' attention, and it's unclear if Jesus actually talks to these guys. It's unclear if he, he gives them the time of day, but he says this in response to their question in John 12, 23 to 26. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus refers to a time of glorification. And it's not going to be in that moment but it w he would be glorified by the end of the week. And then I think when he talks about his death and bearing fruit, there's a sense, in, a sense in which there's this double meeting going on. You see, first of all, I think Jesus is referring to his own sacrifice. You see, when he died on the cross, when he was buried, he was truly alone. He bore our shame. He took that on himself. He was abandoned by the Father because he took on our sin. And then in response at his resurrection, he begins to bear fruit. The life that he gave up is given back to him. And now the life that we can have is offered to us. And now he gets to bear fruit through us. But not only is he talking about his own sacrifice, I think, secondly, Jesus is talking about our way of life and our motivations and intentions. Our lives as his followers will be marked by sacrifice. The Greeks wanted to see Jesus, but he explains that our view toward this world will seem like hatred. Not toward the people of this world, but toward the way of life, toward the motivation. And so if we are truly followers of Jesus, if we're going to follow him fully, then our perspective must adjust to Jesus' point of view. But secondly, in addition to being marked by sacrifice, we see that glory from God is mutually beneficial between the Father and the Son. Jesus seems to understand what would be coming in a few days, and he expresses deep sorrow. Look at what he says in, in chapter 12, verse 27 and 28. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come, into this, come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So Jesus asks this sort of rhetorical question. He said, should I ask God to keep me from what's about to come? And then he answers, basically saying, this is why I came. In the midst of this sacrificial offering, he knows that this is his purpose, to give up his life for us. And he then prays that God's name would be glorified, to which... God responds in a thunderous voice, I have and I will. So God is glorified in Jesus' obedience and even in his sacrifice. But then there's this mutuality to it. It's not just Jesus giving glory to God, but it's God giving glory to Jesus. And we see this, I think, toward the end in verse 31 and 32. He says, now this is now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out and I... When I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. And even through the sacrifice, Jesus is glorified by the means of people being drawn to him. Now think about this fact. Today, being Sunday, there are Christians, men and women, boys and girls, all over the world that are dedicating a good portion of today to honor and glorify Jesus to worship him. They are, we are all drawn to him because of what he did on the cross when he was lifted up on our behalf. In fact, many people call today, Sunday, the Lord's Day in honor of the resurrection of the Son. 
And Jesus' heart was to please the Father and in return the, be glorified by the Father. We see this in his actions. We see this in, in why he did the things he did. But in a few weeks, when we get to John 17, we'll also get to see it in his prayer. But let's take a brief look at that. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. This is what some people call the high priestly prayer. And look at what Jesus asks the night before he's crucified. He says, when he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh and to give him and to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So what can we learn from Jesus' motivation here? When we do things, are we seeking to glorify God alone in our actions? Or are we secretly hoping for a little glory from others? I want a few likes. I want a few accolades. Can we truly say along with that old chorus, in my life, Lord, be glorified. In my words, in my work, in my actions, in my intentions, be glorified. I think all of this talk of glory really gets us down to the final thing to consider. And this is something that we've reflected on nearly every week as we've studied the book of John because this is something that John makes prominent throughout the book. And that is belief. You see, whether or not we believe reflects the source of the glory we seek. Whether or not we believe that Jesus is who he says he is reflects the source of the glory that we seek. And it seems odd to say it this way, the correlation between belief and glory, but this passage seems to tie the two together. You see, first of all, we have to see that belief is initiated by God. The primary focus of John's gospel is belief. He wants people to believe in Jesus. He wants people to trust in him for salvation and life. And no matter what proof there is, we have to admit there are some people who simply will not believe. And I think this passage bears that out a bit. Look at John 12, 37 to 41. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And, who, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. The passage that John quotes here is from Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah has this beautiful vision of the throne room of God and the glory of God is there and, and the, the, a voice of the Lord calls out, who will go for us? And Isaiah replies, here am I, send me. And then he's given this charge which basically says, go and preach, but they're not going to listen. They're going to plug their ears. But I got to tell you, reading this text, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand. It's difficult to read that. It's tough to look at it and say, well, wait, God, I thought you were God of love. I thought you wanted everybody to become your people. In fact, we could even ask the question, isn't he working for the salvation of everyone? Even Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, Lord, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all sh should reach repentance. 
And Jesus himself said in John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what does this mean then, that God would harden hearts and blind the eyes? I think Don Carson and his comments, his comments on this are helpful. He, he writes, God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, as, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. Some have simply chosen unbelief. If you don't yet believe, is it because you've chosen not to? But if we turn this around, we get to see this, this glorious truth on the other side of that same coin of belief. We get to see that it is God who starts it. It is God who grants us to believe. To believe. He draws us to Jesus who is his glory. And Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Even the faith to believe is a gracious gift of God. And there are some people who would say, well, I believe in God, but not in Jesus. Or I believe in Jesus, but not in God. We have to recognize that this passage reminds us that Jesus is the object of belief in God. Jesus is the object of belief in God. The passage concludes this way. Look at starting in verse 44. It says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. And the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given him, has, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. We have to recognize that Jesus and God are consistent. They are one. Belief in God for eternal life means belief in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the means God has made for us to have a relationship with him. Jesus is the voice of God communicating God's ways to a wayward world. Jesus is the voice of judgment declaring belief equals eternal life. Belief equals a changed and transforming life. Disbelief equals eternal judgment. So again, do you believe? Do you believe? Let's pray. God, we do thank you so much for your word and the joy that we have of reading it and studying it, considering it. Lord, we thank you for the way, Jesus, that you worked so beautifully in the midst of, of big things. Lord, help us to follow your example when we are faced with opportunities to try to gain glory from the world around us. Lord, help us to seek to honor and glorify you, recognizing that your ways are different from the world around us. 
And God, for those of us who may not yet believe, God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds that we might come to that knowledge of you. Help us in our doubts. Help us in our frustrations. Help us in our questions to trust in you as Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John 12, 13 through 15 says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on donkey's colt. Let's stand together as we conclude our time.
but as you go, hear the word of the Lord. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You guys have a wonderful week.